Welcome to the Witches and Wine audio experience. things, for obtaining knowledge, for prediction, for psychological analysis, through spiritual means. You know, we have all these new translations, all this actual research of how real geniancy was done from the 1200s to the 1600s, and that's truly causing a new renaissance in the art. It's interesting about geniancy that there's no one way to do that process. You can use pretty much anything as your tool. on here again. It's fucking 8.30 in the morning, but I'm up this early, made up to fill. Just for you, Sam. You're beautiful. I don't know why you go through all this for me. Thank you. He was on a video before with me, and his video must have struck a chord with so many of you guys. There was this one person who commented, bring him back. I was just like, yeah. Then, conveniently, he wrote a book. The ebook that you put out, it goes deep. And I had no idea that there was so much magic connected to geomancy. Well, I'll let you explain, Sam. So I'm writing this textbook on geomancy, and I'm aiming for it to be you know, a really, truly complete treatise on geomantic divination. And originally, I wanted to include at least one chapter, uh, well, I tried to keep it in one chapter, on geomantic magic. You know, including meditations, visualizations, path workings, um, you know, geometric mudras, you know, special hand gestures you can make with geometric figures and so forth. And, you know, I kept writing this chapter. And then when I got to the editing stage, I realized that it wasn't meshing well with the rest of the book. But then I had this, like, the random chapter on geometric magic where it just did not seem to fit and there's no way I can get the flow right if I tried putting it in the middle or I tried putting it at the end if I tried making an appendix it didn't seem to fit now I have my work in progress my textbook on geometric divination and then I broke out this separate text for geometric magic and I think the division there is useful and clear and it also makes sense because not everyone who's interested in divination is interested in magic and not everyone who's interested in magic is necessarily interested in divination. My reaction when I was first reading the ebook uh, was that I never thought about geomantic magic for whatever reason. Like, there are some books about using tarot cards when you're doing magic, runes, for whatever reason, they seem just inherently magical. But in my mind, in my limited knowledge of geomancy, it was always just a yes or no, really balls on accurate divination system, and that was it. First of all, you're intuition that, you know, there's magic for geomancy, like, that's not wrong. You know, runes, from their earliest time, have been a form of divination as well as a form of magic. Tarot, being championed by the Golden Dawn and by, you know, countless number of 
neo-pagans and Jewish people today, it just is inherently tied to magical practice as well as divination and path-working in the tree of life and so forth. Astrology is used for divination as well as for magic, whether it's electional astrology to get the timing right or, you know, pulling down the powers of the planet and the stars and the talismans. All that is just inherently associated with magic from the get-go. Yeah. But if you look at the thousand-year history of geomancy, there really isn't a lot about geomantic magic. It just really isn't that much done. There are some people, you know, in the Arabic forms of geomancy who do use geomantic magic, but that's its own tradition, and that's something that us Westerners really don't have much access to. And the Golden Dawn has their kind of sort of geomantic magic, you know, as they inherited it from John Hayden, from Astea Magia. But in that sense of geomantic magic, it's really just a substitution of substituting the planets with the geomantic figures. So instead of using a Mars talisman, you'd have a Puer talisman, or you'd have a Rubeus talisman, because they're ruled by Mars, therefore they do the same thing. Which, yes technically is a form of geomantic magic, but it's kind of cheap. You know, it's just substitution at that point. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing saying you can't do geomantic magic in other ways. For instance, Balthazar Black's uh, YouTube channel, you know, Balthazar's Conjure, he talks about geomantic candle magic, which is an innovative way to do geomantic magic. Letitia, Puella, and Fortuna Major are very auspicious usually because you are you're having all these benefic planets which is Jupiter, Venus and the Sun coming together and so that's a very auspicious uh, uh, combination and, and in this case it would be Fortuna Major is represented by the the yellow candle Laetitia is represented by the purple candle and Puella here is represented by the green candle, right? And then Puella would be our judge as we used Puella here. If you think even a little bit about it, you can definitely incorporate geomantic figures and geomantic symbology and the algorithms of geomancy into most magical situations. It just takes a little bit of ingenuity for it. So that's really what my goal was for this ebook on geomantic magic, Secreti Geomantici, was not so much to say, here are the forms of geomantic magic you can do, but here are some examples of things you can experiment. Because I fully admit, even though I've written about a lot of these techniques, they're still very experimental. They're still very new. I use them, and I get good results with them, and I keep tweaking them and refining them as I go along. But they're still very experimental. They can definitely be refined. They can definitely be enhanced. They can definitely be augmented. And there's still so much more that can be done. It's just there's not many people doing it. And that ebook, this ebook, I really hope will change that. That can introduce more people into using Geomancy for magic. This ebook is around 70, 80 pages. And yeah. The way that you laid it out was you kind of tied geomancy as a hermetic system of symbols. I talked to Rufus Opus a couple weeks ago. The seven spheres are an approach to understanding how things actually manifest in the world. It is not for everyone. Things begin as an idea and then they descend through these seven spheres and in each sphere the idea gains a little bit more materiality. Mm -hmm. um, 
And he also mentioned Hermeticism. So I'm just like, okay, it's all kind of jigsawing together, but what exactly is Hermeticism? It's funny you mentioned Rufus Opus, because he's actually my instructor in Hermetics. You know, I was one of his you know, students when he was doing his Red Work series of courses, which the material of that became his Seven Spheres book. Um, so Hermeticism. Hermeticism can loosely be defined as the religious philosophy proposed by the mythological prophetic figure Hermes Trismegistus, or Thrice Great Hermes. Real and person? this Hermes... Sorry? Is he a real person or a fictional character? Sure. <laughs> okay. Um, yes and no. Uh, depending... I mean, after a certain point, everything becomes myth, and everything becomes lies, everything becomes truth. So, I, in, all, in all likelihood, he's mythological. Okay. But then again, mythology is real in a lot of ways, so it depends. But the idea goes that you have this dude, Hermes Trismegistus, and he's not Hermes in the Greek sense, but definitely influenced by the Greek Hermes. He's kind of this mystical, mythological, prophetical magic man who's kind of a cross between the Greek Hermes and the Egyptian Thoth. And, you know, the Egyptian god of writing and magic and fate and so forth. So between these two, you have Hermes Trismegistus who story goes, according to the Corpus Hermeticum, which is kind of like the Bible, if you will, of Hermeticism. Uh, it's a collection of philosophical wisdom texts that describes Hermes Trismegistus's uh, encounter with the divine poemander, or the shepherd of men, kind of this demiurge, you know, face of God, and describing to Hermes, here's the order of things, now go forth and be a teacher. And if you look through the past 2,000 years or so of philosophical and religious writings, you see Hermes' name dropped everywhere. You know, he is a, considered not quite a doctor of the church, not quite a saint, but hermetic philosophy and hermetic doctrines really have permeated a lot of the traditional Western mystery a culture, um, ranging from... You have the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. You have the Rosicrucian Order. You have you know, any number of different societies or cults or lodges that are based in some part on Hermeticism. You even have some texts like the Kabbalion, which I despise. Um, but it also claims to be Hermetic, and it uses Hermes Trismegistus' name and his philosophy to bring it kind of more fame so people will pay attention to it more. So Hermeticism really is fundamental to an understanding of traditional Western magic and ritual in the traditional sense. You know, I don't mean necessarily in a witchcraft sense, but in, you know, what you would think of as ceremonial magic. And the philosophy behind Hermeticism is basically Neoplatonism. Neoplatonism is a kind of Platonic philosophy, as founded by the Greek philosopher Plato, that was carried on centuries after his death. You know, there's Plato, then you have the Platonic school, and then over time you had people who would have called themselves Platonists, but from our vantage point in the modern era, there were significant differences that we can call them Neoplatonists, because they also incorporated bits of other philosophers along the way. And very loosely, very quickly, the idea of the Neoplatonic cosmology is kind of nested spheres model. 
you have God, big, infinite ocean of God, the nothing, the divine nothing that is everything. And within this infinite ocean of light and nothingness, you have a bubble. And that bubble is essentially what we would call reality. And that bubble has, you know, nested spheres or layers, kind of like an onion. And as you get deeper into this onion of reality, you get denser and heavier. You accumulate more form. You accumulate will and ideas and emotions and thoughts. And then finally, you attain a material form, a material body. So if you think of the old geocentric model of the solar system, where Earth is at the center, and the moon is around that, and then Mercury's around that, and then Venus is around that, that's essentially the Neoplatonic geocentric model of the cosmology, where humanity, the world we live on, really is the center of the universe. And that can be interpreted one of two ways. A, that we really are the divine pinnacle, like the fulfillment of creation. Everything else had to be made so we could be here. But at the same time, we're so distant and so far removed from that infinite ocean of nothing of light of God that we're essentially the flaming dumpster fire outside the city walls of the kingdom of God. I probably said that before. Working in that hermetic cosmology, you learn what's called the chain or the ladder of manifestation. You know, if you want to ascend, you ascend from Earth through the spheres of the planets, from you know, the Earth to the Moon to Mercury to Venus to the Sun to Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, to the sphere of the fixed stars, which is essentially the zodiac, and then from there to wherever else you want to go in the divine nothingness of God. Or, if you want to bring things down and manifest things, you have this idea in the mind of God, and then you process it through those different spheres, having it pick up all the things you picked up originally, until you bring it to material manifestation, the world we live on. So I can definitely see why Rufus Opus said that that is a worldview, that it's a worldview. It's definitely, if you are a straight up materialist, that worldview does not fly. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so, uh, but if you do subscribe to that worldview, and to me, it does definitely make some sort of intuitive sense. I'm just like, okay, yeah, like the way that it's explained, uh, there's no science equipment to prove it, and yet there's something inside of me that says there, mu there might be something to this, you know? So can't prove it, but it kind of feels like, okay, okay, you know, I can, I can kind of fuck with this idea, you know? Like it's not totally yeah. out there for whatever reason. This is one of the more common hermetic cosmologies, but it is still just one model, and you can have different models. You know, as the chaos magicians would say, paradigm shift. You know, you have a different model of how things work. And depending on your need, depending on what you're doing, depending on what techniques you want to use, you would shift your model from one understanding to another. For me, in my case, yes, I'm a hermetic magician, but I'm also a priest in Santeria. And those two, there are some similarities in their cosmologies, but they're still two completely separate cosmologies. And I can't bring a hermetic cosmology when I'm going before the Arisha. And I can't bring, you know, Arisha cosmology if I'm working with the Archangels, or if I'm working with astrological magic. So they're different understandings, but it's still a model, and all models have use. It's just important to remember that the map is not the territory. I totally agree with that, and 
I have friends who are all over the political spectrum. And if I'm talking to my, I don't have any Trump supporters, I think, as friends, but I definitely have some hardcore libertarians. And when I'm talking to them, unless I want to get into a big brawl that will completely destroy the friendship, I need to sort of step into their worldview. Mm -hmm. And then when I'm talking to my bleeding heart liberal friends, I step into their worldview. When I talk to my super Christian friends, I step into their worldview. They're all very separate. And yet I can switch and still be in reality. For me, learning how to get rid of that super, like, it has to be one way, you know, there's only one objective reality. Um, that was the first step in sort of becoming more magical and being mm -hmm. able to think, okay, I can sort of have more softer nebulous boundaries in terms of what I consider objective reality. Geomancy, like the video before that we did, you explained it as each line showing an element. And you see how each figure has four rows. Fire, air, water, and earth in that order. And your book talks about the elements. They are sort of like the intermediary between like all the celestial spheres and like us. In a sort way. Of. Am I totally putting words in your... Okay, please explain. So... There is definitely interplay between the zodiac signs, the planets, and the elements. There absolutely is. But you kind of need to break it down by sphere. So, at the most distant, you have the sphere of the fixed stars. You have the stars that do not move, the constellations, the zodiac signs themselves. Beneath that, you have the seven spheres, the seven planets, from Saturn going down to the moon. And those are the wandering stars. The word planet is a Greek word that really means wandering. And then in the middle of all those spheres, you have the realm of the elements, which you can consider to be nested within themselves. But more commonly, it's thought of that all four elements are mixed together to form the world we live in. So the elements really are separate from the planets. There are connections between them, absolutely. You know, Fire is definitely associated with Mars and the Sun. But though there are connections, you can't really equate the planets with the elements. And you might have heard of quintessence or the fifth element, you know, which isn't necessarily love, as according to the movie. But it is kind of a... I consider it not quite an element, not quite a planet. It is an underlying kind of sub-force that undergirds everything else. You can call it ether, you can call it chi, you can call it ki, you know, you can call it whatever you want. For me, it's the fifth element. I use element loosely here. So when I refer to the elements, I don't refer to the five elements. I refer to the four elements plus one. And that spirit, that aether, that fifth element kind of brings and ties everything together into its matrix. And because it's neither here nor there, it's not something you can really, I claim, at least in my own personal practice, it's not something you would directly interface with. The geomantic symbol set relies on the four elements, fire, air, water, earth. And you'll notice they get from least dense to most dense. Fire goes upward, air goes around, Water goes down, and Earth stands still. You have the most subtle and movable and flighty to the least subtle and most dense. And you can kind of set nesting there as well. 
And when you do a geometry reading, you can rely on that elemental symbolism to say, well, Laetitia, which is pure fire, you know, only fire is present. You know, it's about optimism and uplifting energy because it's pure fire. Fire goes upwards. And therefore, you can't keep a secret because fire burns and casts light, and you can't ignore light. While Tristitia is pure earth, so it drags you down. It is depression. It is being stuck in a pit of despair. But at the same time, you can keep things buried because it's pure earth. You've got the four elements. They're represented, they're represented by the lines mm -hmm. in geomancy and the way that they all interact together in a shield chart. Um, kind of represents the energies around you. Then you've got mm -hmm. the fifth energy, or the fifth element, the quintessence, um, that sort of, I guess, is the interface between the higher sort of cosmic spheres and sort of the more earthly spheres, in a way. Like, I'm trying to figure out, like, I guess the, the question is, okay, then when we're doing geomancy, what are we manipulating then? And then is it going up? Is it going down? You know, what's going on? First of all, when you mentioned the fifth element involved in geomancy, I've actually written something about this before. Basically, the fifth element has no role at all, no direct role, at least. It may play a role behind the scenes, like it would with everything else, but you're not really working with spirit or aether or quintessence or whatever in a geomantic chart or in geomantic magic. Like, there's no... You can't point to a figure and say, this figure represents the fifth element, or the fifth element's, you know, interacting with fire in this figure. Like, you can't say that because there's no fifth row for the figures. There's no fifth mother or fifth daughter or fifth nephew or, fifth, sorry, niece. You know, there's no role for the fifth element to play except that it keeps everything going from behind the scenes. So when you're in a geometric reading, honestly, the jury's kind of still out in that. Like, what are you really manipulating when you're doing a geomancy reading? You could ask the same question for tarot or runes or astrology. Like, astrology is an example. You know, when you do an astrological reading, you're looking at the positions of the stars. Okay, fair enough. But what are you manipulating? Well, you're just taking observation. You're reading the patterns. Well, what are those patterns formed by? You know, time and gravity and, you know, orbits. But what's powering those? What's the spiritual mechanism behind those things to be the way they are? That, you could say, is the fifth element. You know, what is it about a combination of water and air to form the figure Cognuncio? What is it about that particular elemental combination that allows for discussion and trade and coming together? You know, what is it about that combination? You know, what makes that combination of elements work in that way? You can consider that, you know, to be undergirded by spirit, but you're not really interfacing with spirit per se. At least that's my point of view. You know, you talk to five different magicians, you'll get seven different answers, 12 if you wait a day. There's a quintessence, there's that fifth element, and I'm going to assume it's kind of like the anima mundi, sort of kind of whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and you have a section about, okay, so if you're kind of like interfacing with that, then before you even do a chart, you got to make sure that your divination is on point, right? You got to make sure that you are creating an accurate chart, and then we can start doing magic from an accurate chart. Because I think in um, the your Facebook group, in the geomantic study group, I wrote how I did a lot of these charts, and they were not accurate. Like these were like short times charts, like results that should have happened within a couple days, and they didn't. 
I wondered about that, and it was because I felt when troubleshooting, I was using the wrong tools. Like I wasn't in the right state of mind, and also I was using like an app <laughs> instead of grounding myself. I didn't realize how important it was to do the correct stuff before divination. I was trying to do like charts with like just playing cards mm -hmm. instead of doing like the apps and stuff. Yeah. I think the playing cards, they work a lot better. Good, sure. good. Sure. Did you read the post I wrote about using playing cards for geomancy? I did. And you know what? I just do it the super simple way. I just lay out. <laughs> That's, fine. That's fine. That's fine. I was wondering if you did yet. Yeah. If you can go into that kind of special headspace, the zone, where all that is is the reading ahead of you, then that's what you want to aim for. That's why I don't like people using apps or you know online random number generators you know for divination because you don't have much of an opportunity to get into that zone, that headspace, that you know manipulating a stick and a surface or shuffling cards or some other physical act that can distract your physical body and your physical responses. That way your mind can kind of detach just enough that you can focus. So being able to focus is important. You know, being able to come to situation without bias is important. So like, if you're really worried about something that's going to happen to you, like, for instance, if you're wondering whether you know, some dude, you know, is going to fall for you. And you're really set after this dude, and you can't accept a negative answer, then you're not ready to do a divination reading for yourself. You can either wait, maybe do some meditation, maybe do some purification on your own, so that you can become ready, or you can have someone else do the divination for you on your behalf. That way, they can be unbiased for you. I've seen specifically mentioned in geomantic literature that you should also pay attention to the environment around you. Like, obviously it's hard to maintain focus if you're surrounded by children, or if you're being crawled over by children, or if you're at a theme park, or if you're swimming. You know, it's hard to maintain that kind of divinatory focus. But I've also seen it mentioned that you should pay attention to the weather. You know, it's inadvisable to do divination when there's a terrible storm going on, or if there's an earthquake or if there's severe wind, or if there's truly biting frost. You know, not too long ago, we had a terrible windstorm here that knocked over trees, and like, we hadn't seen anything like that in decades here. That would have been a poor time for divination. And the reason is that you're trying to tap into the anima mundi, the soul of the world. You know, by tapping to this kind of undergirding matrix of reality of the world we live in, kind of like a material Akashic record, if you will, by tapping into that, you can pull up any information you want from this world. But if the anima mundi is upset, you're not going to get good results. Why? Because anima mundi is like the mind of the world. It's the soul of the world. And if your mind is upset, you can't focus. So if the soul of the world is upset, it can't focus. It's like if I were to try to call out to you, you know, through a staticky connection. You couldn't hear me, I couldn't hear you, so we're kind of wasting our breath. If you can maintain that focus, and if you have a strong connection to Anima Mundi, you can mitigate bad weather somewhat. Like, a little bit of rain falling? Not a big problem. Torrential downpour? You may want to hold off, unless it's truly necessary, and if you can truly shut it out, where you can really get that deep focus.
Yeah, I'm just imagining like an Edgar Allan Poe story, you know. It's always like, on a windy and stormy night. That's how all the stories start. Sort of yeah. like how the mood of the story can be affected by the weather and therefore it makes perfect sense. But it's kind of like a reflection of the, the, the sort of turmoil that the hero or heroine of the story is feeling. So it's all connected mm-hmm. anyway. Remember in high school where we were all supposed to like write, show how the landscape like shows like how the character is feeling. Talk about exactly. how the weather. You know, it's kind of like that. So you have to be chill. Animal Mundi, the world around you has to be chill weather-wise, like other people-wise, too. So you're chill now. Mm-hmm. And, then, and also, another cool thing is, you know, it's also advisable to do divination while traveling. Like, if you're in a train or if you're flying, like, that kind of constant moving, you can't maintain a good connection to whatever. Because there's so much going on around you, it's hard to lock in on something. That's another thing I've noticed. And I've both seen that written down, and I've experienced it myself. You know, where there's something missing from my focus, even if I'm like on an empty airplane, you know, and there's truly nothing going on around me, I still have a hard time kind of getting that connection, getting that same headspace. So there's something to it, you know. So again, if you can be still inside, be still in the world, and things outside of you are still, then that's key, in my opinion. Although you do mention that you can also do divinations. Um, you can do a shield chart in a busy alehouse. Oh, yeah. You absolutely can. Like, again, if you maintain that focus, you know, awesome. If you can't, you might want to move. But I've done divinations in bars before. I've done divination in libraries and in auditoriums and during a busy psychic fair. You know, it's not that you can't do it in a busy environment. It is that... It might be inadvisable if you can't get the focus. So if there's too much going on around you for people to focus, wait or move. If there's too much going on inside of you, wait or, you know, hold off. Mm-hmm. If you're sick or if you're injured or if you're in pain, you might have a hard time focusing. So you might want to put it off. Anything that prevents your focus and connection is something you want to mitigate or eliminate. I really want to stress this part because I have experienced just my charts being totally off because I was not in the right headspace and I wasn't in the right environment generating those first four figures. And we mentioned in our previous video that that's kind of the only part where you have to be sort of in that altered state. I mean, that's crucial. I mean, you're generating the rest of the chart from those first four figures. So, you know, let's make sure that those first four figures are generated in a way that's most conducive to the truth. Your book talks about, of course, there's meditation that you do before you generate the chart, but also meditating and contemplating on each of the characters. And when I was, like, reading through that, especially you have an actual sort of, like, guided meditation, like a script that you wrote on how to do this meditation. I was like, whoa, this is hardcore. So I actually want to credit... That like that's not an original innovation of mine. It's something I expanded on and made a little more specific, based on John Michael Gere's book Art and Practice of Geomancy. Because like in his book, he also has a section on geomancy magic, and he actually talks about visualizing, contemplating the figures. And when I was getting started in geomancy, I took that to heart, and I did it as much as I could, or as long as I could. And essentially, you're pathworking. 
And, you know, everyone knows what pathworking is, but it really has a specific connotation. Um, the word pathworking really is meant to refer to working the paths on the tree of life. You know, you have the ten spheres on the tree of life, you know, the uh, Kabbalah tree of life. But then you have all the different paths that connect all the different sephirot. And that's really the more important thing on the tree of life. It's not the ten sephirot that are important, and they are, but they're not half as important as the actual paths that connect them. It's like, you know, you have, you know, the chakras or the three energy centers and, you know, East Asian energy work. But the energy centers are important, but it's the meridians of the channels that connect them and go throughout all the body. That's more important. Right. So the idea behind pathworking is that you're going on a trip. You're going to take a journey. And you want to take that journey in and learn from it. So what's the first part of a journey? Opening up the door. You visualize a door with the figure that you're going to visualize emblazoned on the door. You, know, you try to visualize it as completely as you can so that in your mind, that door is real. That door exists. You can taste it if you want to lick it. You can you know, feel the grain of the wood or the texture of the stone or the silken weave of the fabric on it. You, know, you can really make it real in your head. And once you have achieved that, you open the door. And then you just see what's behind it. Beyond that, I can't write anything about it. I can write about my experiences and my trips to the worlds and paths of these figures. But it may not be the same thing you see in your path working. You really are just opening that door, your door, to the world of that figure. And you're just wandering around. You know, you follow the path that has been set out for you in that world. You look around and what color is the sky? What are the things I'm hearing? What are the smells I'm smelling? You know, do I hear the waves of the ocean crashing in the background? Or am I hearing the wind, the pine trees on the cliff? Do I feel the grit of sand from the desert cliffs underneath my feet? Or am I feeling the soft blades of grass crunch under my toes? You know, am I feeling the breeze of the wind? Or am I feeling the harshness of hail? You know, it could be any of these things. You might see friends. You might see pets. You might see people you've never known before. You might see some truly weird, obscure, weird thing. But in the context of it all, makes complete sense. You're basically going on a symbolic journey into the world of the figure. And then you just take all that in. Just experience it, enjoy it, maybe run away if it gets a little too scary. <laughs> and then you head out back the same door you came in, you close the door. And then you just process it. What did you see? How did it feel? What do you think it meant? Give it a day. What do you think it meant again? And so forth. It never even occurred to me to contemplate any of the figures. I mean, tarot cards, okay, because there's artwork. Of course, mm -hmm. it makes sense that you would sit and look at the, the, the colors, the lines, what does the dog and the fool, you know, the fool card, what does it mean? You know, why is it nipping here and not there? Different decks have different artwork. Exactly. Um, but for geomancy, never thought of it that way. And yet... It makes perfect sense. That's also one of the reasons why I have that whole chapter on Hermetic Cosmology in my ebook. Because you're right. You're absolutely right. Tarot is beautiful. It is elaborately, intricately layered with, you know, 
layers upon layers upon layers of symbolism all delicately and beautifully laid out for you, assuming you got a good deck at least. Yeah. There are some that aren't. But then you also have, you know, astrological symbols where they may be short and simple symbols, but you can break them down and see how they interplay and see what patterns are with different symbols. Yeah. The symbol for Mars is the shield and lance of Aries. The symbol for Venus is the mirror of you know Aphrodite, but they both have that circle in them. So what does that mean? But with geomancy, you just have dots. You have yes or no. You have is there or is not there. So you really do need at least some background on what are the elements, what are the planets, what are the zodiac signs, and how does it all tie together, and how is that distilled into geomancy, and how does geomancy pull from all that? Geomancy is at a disadvantage in that sense, because it does seem so abstract. It does seem so, you know, obscure and hard to connect to. But appearances can be deceiving. These are just representations of combinations of elements. Fire and water. Air and water. Fire and air. Fire, air, and water. Okay. But then if you interpret that as a chemical reaction, what does that chemical reaction look like? What does the chemical reaction taste like? What does it feel like? What does it sound like? What does it dream like? You know, yes, the symbols, the geometric figures are very basic and abstract, but they're keys to unlock doors. They are codes that reflect bigger things. So one of the things that really surprised me when I was reading through your ebook was all the correspondence tables. In Jason Miller's latest book, Elements of Spellcrafting, he talks about how actually correspondences, every single layer is important. Like, mm -hmm. the most bang for your buck is when you layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of correspondences and things that mesh well together. So I had no idea that Geomancy had so many correspondences. You can layer upon layer upon layer magic uh, with Geomancy and have it all correspond. Planetary hour, planetary day, astrology, uh, just, you know, hand like we were talking in the beginning about mm -hmm. the mudras, all about yep. your body and everything. For instance, when we talk about planetary rulerships, lots of correspondence. You know, Puer and Rubeus are corresponded with Mars. And then Mars is corresponded with Aries and Scorpio. And then, if depending on your correspondence system, you might have other zodiac signs they tie into. So, you can kind of connect the dots and say, well, this is corresponded to this, and from there I can get to here, from here I can get to there. Therefore, there exists a path from here to there that I can tap into. Now, there is a danger of this. There is absolutely a danger of this. And essentially, while layering more similar things on top of each other absolutely works. Like, for instance, if I'm doing a conjuration ritual of, say, the Angel of Mars. Okay, well, I know the planet. Good. I want to do it on a Tuesday, because Tuesday is the day of Mars. Ideally, I would do it when the sun is in Mars. Or sorry, when the sun is in Aries or Scorpio, the sign ruled by Mars. Or when the planet Mars is especially dignified. I would use a red tablecloth. I would use pine or pepper incense. I would dress in, you know, army clothes or fatigues or, you know, a soldier outfit. I would, you know, use really brusque, manly smells. 
I wear iron jewelry, I would you know, use XYZ, bringing all these things that resonate with the planet Mars into this ritual. I think that's the layering you're referring to. Because the other kind of layering is n- distraction. This is what I call to Lieber 777-ing everything. You have Lieber 777, which is a well-known occult text, I think spearheaded by Alistair Crowley, which is basically a massive correspondence table of everything to everything else, based on, you know, the Ten Sephiroth, the 22 Paths, the Tree of Life. Okay, straightforward enough. And he really does correspond pretty much everything that was in vogue at the time, from Egyptian gods to Celtic gods to Babylonian gods to planets to demons to names of God and this, that, and the other. And you can definitely go from here to here to here to here to here to here and come up with a correspondence. But in my experience, the more layers you have that separate two things, the weaker the connection becomes. Like you could totally associate my left foot, specifically my left foot, with the Greek goth off. There exists a correspondence to that, I'm sure. Does it make any sense? Absolutely not. Oh, but you can leave her 777 it. Just because you can make a chain of correspondences doesn't mean you should. And in my experience, the fewer correspondences you have to go through to get from here to there, the better. So for instance, case in point with geomancy, I use a particular set of zodiacal correspondences for the geomantic figures that may catch some people off guard. It used to be the more popular one. It used to be the only one available to all of Europe. But starting the late Renaissance period, a more simple zodiacal correspondence came up. For instance, in the Golden Dawn system, which is inspired by John Hayden, Puer is associated with the sign Aries. Why? Because Puer is associated with Mars, and then Mars is associated with Aries. Okay, fair enough. But in the system I use, Puer is associated with Gemini. Why? Well, turns out there's actually an older system of lunar mansions where Puer is associated to a lunar mansion that's located in Gemini. So for me, it's a little more direct to use that older set of correspondences than the more modern one that has an extra man in the middle. Is it that there's Mars is a middleman between... Sort of. So... In the Golden Dawn system, inspired by John Hayden, you go from geometric figure to planet to sign. Okay. In the older system, you basically go directly from uh, figure to sign. Okay. There's no middleman. It's more direct. And I say it goes by Lunar Mansion, but the Lunar Mansions are just a redivisioning of the Zodiac. Like, uh, I had heard of Lunar Mansions before, and I have an app iLuna that I use a lot mm-hmm. and uh, I always wondered what's that thing with the bottom part that has like an Arabic sounding sort of name and I never understood it I make a big deal out of them at least for describing how certain things come to be mm-hmm. but truth be told lunar agents have not really a big role to play in most western magic systems They're huge in Arabic magic and Arabic astrology. They are huge in, you know, Indian uh, Indian and Hindu and Vedic systems, using a slightly different set of lunar mansions. They're huge in Chinese astrology, again, using a different set. 
You know, knowing the position of the moon amongst the background stars is huge. But it never really took off for the, you know, many reasons in Europe. I mean, there are, you know, texts like the Picatrix and Cornelius Agrippa's Three Books of Cult Philosophy that do absolutely talk in depth and at length about the lunar mansions. But in general, you just don't seem to find them that used. They were used, just not that much compared to other things. But because Jumanji has its origins as an Arabic, Islamic, Middle Eastern, Saharan art, you do see traces of that, at least in a few places. I liked how you were talking about how if you use the right timing, then you don't have to do as much. Like, it's almost yeah. like, yeah, it's almost like on a really nice, sunny, windy day, your sailboat, like, it kind of drifts on its own versus a day where there's no wind and you gotta, like, row the motherfucker, mm -hmm. you know? It's kind of like that. The metaphor I like using is imagine you're standing in a river and, you know, you're in the middle of the river and there's things coming down the river towards you. Some pieces are trash. Some pieces are, you know, nice bits of coin or some jewelry. Some pieces are, you know, toxic bombs waiting to explode. Mm -hmm. Divination helps position you so you know where to stand so you can avoid the bombs and get the gold. Magic, on the other hand, helps bring the things you want towards you and sends the things you don't want away from you without you necessarily having to move, or at least not having to move as much. Work smarter, not harder. Exactly. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Witches and Wine audio experience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon. You can choose between a few membership tiers. They're super affordable and flexible. Your membership helps me continue making videos, podcasts, articles, lots of different things about all the sweet witchy stuff. Links are in the show notes. Also, don't forget to go on iTunes and give this a five-star rating. Each five-star rating helps rank this podcast higher in searches so that as many witches can find and enjoy these episodes as well. Until next time, this is Chawan signing off.